Monday, it's a special behind-the-scenes event. Meet the bad, the ugly, the cute, the cuddly, the classic creatures. Return of the Jedi. Host Carrie Fisher and Billy D. Williams reveal the secrets behind legendary characters from King Kong to Jabba the Hutt. Classic creatures. Return of the Jedi. Monday. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. At the Movies. An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. The new and improved Star Wars opens on January 31st. The Empire Strikes Back will open in February, followed by Return of the Jedi in March. Sure was great to see Star Wars on the big screen, huh? Excellent. Star Wars Special Edition comes to theaters two weeks from today. You have to wait two weeks. My first time seeing it. Just awesome. Best movie ever made. It was worth it. Worth waiting in line since 7 in the morning. <laughs> Brought back all the memories. I felt great. I really did. have to say, it was better the second time. It's just great that all these kids now, a whole new generation, can see this movie. It's so great. There are some people here that have your Princess Leia hairstyle up there. The, the oh, that's disturbing. Hello there, welcome to Star Wars at the Movies, episode 21. This chapter will be a celebration on two fronts that were pivotal to both my guest and yours truly in terms of forming our, our Star Wars worldviews, or galaxy views, if you will. You'll be hearing from Brandon Winerty, whose Talking Bay 94 podcast has accomplished so, so much with building this oral history of behind-the-scenes personalities that brought Star Wars magic to the screen. As all the special feature fanatics out there are keenly aware, so many of the same making-ofs impacted each of us at different stages in our lives and fandoms and continue to leave lasting impressions on how we consume and interpret Star Wars. We remember the first time watching certain behind-the-scenes documentaries or TV specials just as vividly as the first time we saw the movies themselves. And the one that completely blew my mind to sparkling little bits was From Star Wars to Jedi, which our family had rented on VHS from Blockbuster in the early 90s. Plus, From Star Wars to Jedi is also available at a new low price. This stunning documentary takes you deep into the fascinating world created for the Star Wars trilogy. Action! Immerse yourself in the mind of George Lucas. Special effects are just a tool, a means of telling a story. A special effect without a story is a pretty boring thing. From storyboard to creature creation, from character development to the puppeteers who gave them life. Eventually, you actually take a real person and stick them into that character. And that real person brings with him, or her, an enormous package of reality. I mean, 3PO is just a hunk of plastic. And without Tony Daniels in there, it just isn't anything at all. Join George Lucas and friends for a delightful look at From Star Wars to Jedi. Hello in TV land. I was Star Wars starved and had never seen any sort of behind-the-camera take on it, or any movie really. I became obsessed, and as the past due date on the tape had long passed, it got to the point where my mom had tried to record a copy of it for me to keep. I will never forget the rhythmically undulating macrovision picture brightness distortion that resulted, and just not caring, because I was watching human beings stuffed inside of Jabba the Hutt bringing him to life. What? I operate Jabba's right arm and the jaw of his mouth and i do the the voice at the moment to uh, make the lip sync and uh between toby and myself we do the body movements the rocking of the of the whole figure and yeah well, I'm, the, I'm the silent brain hemisphere i either do the left hand and the tongue and uh, that goes in here and my right hand is free inside the head and uh, basically works this head control tipping it left and right front and back and up and down I have one other control that can swivel the head, revolve it. And um, for certain shots, I have things like the tongue here, my hand goes. I have a couple of cable controls that do snarls around the mouth. And um, 
using my feet and the weight of my body, I, I share with David the job of actually moving the body about. These uh, hand controls here, these two, operate the twitches around the corners of the mouth, middle of the mouth, lower jaw, and also the nostrils. And my feet work the bellows, which in turn works the respiratory system of the beast, the lungs. The smoke from this cigar is for Jabber. When he smokes his pipe, I blow it up the tube and it trickles out of the corner of his mouth. If I was drinking port, it would be a perfect job. So yes, the first ingredient being blessed here is behind-the-scenes wizardry, but there's a milestone that's also needing to be observed. That being this year's 25th anniversary of the paradigm shift that was the Star Wars Trilogy Special Edition. And now, preview time. For an entire generation, people have experienced Star Wars the only way it's been possible, on the TV screen. But if you've only seen it this way, you haven't seen it at all. Now, for its 20th anniversary, the adventure of a lifetime returns to the big screen in a way you've never seen before. There'll be no one to stop us this time. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. With newly enhanced visual effects. They're coming in too fast! THX and digital sound. And a few new surprises. Hanabuki. On President's Day weekend, 1997, George Lucas and 20th Century Fox invite you to welcome back Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Chewbacca, C-3PO, and R2-D2. Finally, the motion picture event, the way it was meant to be experienced. This will be a day long remembered. As the entire Star Wars trilogy returns. On February 14th, Star Wars, followed soon after by The Empire Strikes Back. And then Return of the Jedi. Move closer! For a whole new generation who have yet to experience it on the big screen. And for everyone else to experience it again. our last hope. No, there is another. The Star Wars Trilogy, Special Edition. See it again, for the first time. The Force will be with you, always. The significance of Star Wars as a theatrical event, with a capital E, may never be expressed so powerfully again. And say what you will on the merits or demerits of changes that were made to the movies, this was the biggest of big deals. Yeah, you know, it's always bothered me that Harry said, oh, they're so great, and they're so wonderful, and they're so, you know, but they're all these little things that aren't finished on it. So um, I said, this would be a great opportunity if I could go back and actually fix all those little things that I didn't like. To revamp the trilogy, George Lucas called on the special effects company he himself created some two decades ago, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. Located just a few minutes away from Lucas's Skywalker Ranch in Marin County, California, ILM created the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, the death-defying feats in Mission Impossible, and merged Tom Hanks with President Kennedy in Forrest Gump. Computer-generated animation became the main tool in tweaking scenes for the special edition of Star Wars. Finally, the Force has been released, or re-released, on an enthusiastic public in the United States. Darth Vader and company are back on the big screen, and fans are fighting to get tickets. CNN's Jonathan Carl reports. This will be a day long remembered. Deja vu all over again. Star Wars in the movie theaters and people waiting online to get in. The re-premiere of Star Wars has drawn crowds rivaling the size of the crowds that turned out the first time the movie premiered 20 years ago. I've been obsessing over Star Wars since I was three years old. I was seven years old and saw it 23 times. <laughs> Star Wars opened in 1800 theaters Friday, selling out showings from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. and New York. At the Ziegfeld Theater in Manhattan, some showings have been sold out since last week, when tickets first went on sale. As the trilogy's promotional poster beautifully states, these were, quote, 
three reasons why they build movie theaters. The original film's $35 million opening weekend kicking off on January 31st, 1997 was staggering. And even wilder was the fact that a Star Wars movie released 14, 17, or 20 years prior was the box office leader for six of the next seven weekends from February through March. No doubt about it, Star Wars is still a force to be reckoned with 20 years after it first came out. The new edition of the movie simply blew away the competition this weekend. And joining us now to talk more about the Star Wars phenomenon is our movie analyst, Martin Grove. Marty, I know that you said months ago this re-release would be big, but that's nearly $36 million big. Uh, yeah, Jim, it is huge. It's stellar business. Now, <laughs> the reason I expected big business, and not, not that big, nobody knew it would be that big. Tom Sherrick, one of the top executives at Fox, said to me last fall, you must come Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock, to this particular theater to see the trailer play. And when I got there, it was exactly what Tom Sherrick said. People were cheering, whistling, stomping their feet. They loved Star Wars. So you could anticipate a big crowd. A number of new movies have hit theaters across the country, but it's a 20-year-old film that's still number one. Joining us now, Corey Brown, entertainment reporter for Newsweek magazine. Corey? Hi, Dagny. Hi. The Empire Strikes Back is re-released this Friday. Do you think that's too soon, given that Star Wars is obviously still packing them in? Absolutely. Who would have guessed that the, this thing would have had legs like it has? No one would have anticipated that the repeat business, which is the audience that goes now, they're going again and again and again. They can't get enough. Someone once said nostalgia ain't what it used to be. Someone was wrong. The Empire Strikes Back, now back in theaters, is the number one movie in America. And at number two, Star Wars. Now they belong to the ages, ages 6 to 66. The emphasis of the generational impact this re-release was meant to have couldn't have been more on the money. For the first time in my life, Star Wars was truly on every kid's radar, which, as a youth of the dark times, was a great and honestly validating feeling. I'm here in a sneak preview for Star Wars, the special edition. Let's check out the crowd. I want my have you seen this movie? About 40? Luke, I am your father. How do you feel about seeing it on the big screen? I want it! I can't wait to see it on the big screen because I've never seen it before. We're going in! Yeah! I lost my voice in there. What'd you think? Everything that I wanted, timestamp. Star Wars, the special edition. Rated PG, back on the big screen, January 31st. Star Wars. 20 years ago, it was the number one movie in America. <laughs> It's back on the big screen, and audiences have made it number one again. Yeah. So much better than seeing it on TV. Everyone should go out and see it. Now I am the master. To watch them and how they get so excited, it's just incredible. Here's where the fun begins. Join the celebration. They're never too young to get them hooked <laughs> on Star Wars. Star Wars, the special edition. Thank you, Alan. Rated PG, now playing. Though separated by a few years, both Brandon and I were among that target audience. His doorway into Star Wars was that of Tinseltown, USA's in Plano, Texas. Opened and operated by Cinemark Theaters in December 1996, and a mere month ahead of a New Hope special edition release, Tinseltown was situated along the Dallas North Tollway and originally advertised itself as, quote, the largest theater in North Texas. With 20 screens and stadium seating to serve its customers, the then Cinemark flagship was primed to bring Star Wars back to the big screen in modern fashion, and in a way that no one had ever seen it before. Speaking of Cinemark, another one of its Dallas-area locations would end up being just as, if not more, important for Brandon's Star Warsing adventures. Opened not long after The Phantom Menace debuted in the summer of 1999, the Cinemark legacy, as it's now known, would become a regular stomping ground for him during a very, very formative prequel era and beyond. We dive into all of that and much more, traversing the entire modern, and I suppose postmodern Star Wars movie-going experience and how it's shaped his life both personally and professionally. Alright, it's time to meet up with Front Row Joe and hit the feature presentation. We're gonna party! We're gonna rock! We're gonna let the good times roll! Me and Popcorn Panty just love that set of our show. Video games are jumping. The popcorn's really hopping. From the snack bar down to the front row seat, Cinemark Silvers can't be beat. All our friends got lots of class. Clyde's got nothing but nerve. I talk all through the movie. He's gonna get what he deserves. Ah. It's time for the show. Take your places. Fun at 
Cat Center, Mark Ayers, Contagious. You're ready to party, you're ready to rock. You're a winner, Cat Center, Mark. And now for our feature presentation. I grew up in uh, Dallas, Texas, uh, and really my first like entertainment entities, especially the ones that I really like gravitated towards or became, you know, quote, obsessed with the, the were Pixar movies when they were first coming out. Toy Story hit pretty much at the perfect time for me um, to really, you know, collect the actual toys and be kind of blown away by what I was seeing and what it looked like. Uh, and then really, what's Toy Story? 1995, I want to say. Uh, and so there's not a lot of time between that and uh, 97 with the special editions. I'd seen Star Wars once before on VHS at my grandparents' house, um, you know, the half half portrait uh, VHS covers. Um, and I saw that once. It, You know, I, I thought it was cool. It didn't make a, a super impact on me. So it was really Toy Story. Uh, there was some Muppets. First movie I ever saw in theaters was Muppet Treasure Island. So that kind of uh, was a big thing as well. And then, uh, and then, yeah, Star Wars hits early 97. I was born in 92. So that is pretty, pretty early and pretty formative. Uh, and just kind of goes from there. Oh, amazing. So in those pre Star Wars days, did your family have a favorite movie theater? Did you go to the movies often when you were a kid? Yeah, my, my dad loved movies and loves movies. He loves, that's his like favorite thing to do is going to the movies and then falling asleep halfway through a movie. Uh, so he sees everything uh, and he loved seeing movies. And we saw a bunch. I remember seeing Casper uh, when that came out. And there was a couple around Dallas and I specifically lived in a suburb called Plano. Uh, and there were a couple in, in Plano that were pretty close to us. That all now actually are like churches, I think, you know, of that kind of uh, caliber. Because pretty much as soon as the special editions started moving in, that's when Tinseltown opened. And then very soon after that, Cinemark, which bought Tinseltown. So we had that movie-going experience pretty locked in. And then as soon as the Star Wars movies were announced to like be at the Tinseltown, specifically, we drove a little bit further out of our way. And it was more of a special occasion to see the first Star Wars uh, because it was a better screen and a better experience, and my dad uh, wanted me to to check it out. So yeah, um, we, we had seen a bunch, and of course with VHS being so regular, especially Disney animated movies and Pixar movies, it was kind of like a regular thing. Uh, but then really Star Wars kind of took hold and and went wild. So the special editions start to hit. Did you get to see the original just one time or did you get to go back and see it again? What was your initial takeaway from seeing it on the big screen for the first time? Yeah, it, I mean, special editions, again, I'm very lucky with how old I am and, and kind of what I was able to experience because much like what we see later with 99 and to a lesser extent 2002, but there was a huge marketing blitz for the special editions, it almost made it feel like it wasn't an old movie, right? There was really nothing in my mind that was like, oh, this is, you know, this was made 20 years ago or whatever the case might be. Taco Bell presents Nacho and Dog. Giant Nacho Bucket, Jack. Extra large drink, Jack. Super huge candy bar. Oh, Jack. Perfect seats, check around Taco Bell. That's that food, dog. Movies are now in theaters, and Star Wars toys are at Taco Bell. When you buy a Taco Bell kids meal, you can get the R2D2 Playscape, the Millennium Falcon Gyroscope, and more. You can collect all seven Star Wars toys at Taco Bell. Uh, there were the toys, and there was the fast food, and there was the sodas, and there was everything in the, the grocery stores. And so, seeing the first one, I was kind of really prompting towards it. I I'd kind of had it in the back of my mind from seeing it on VHS once a long time before. And of course, my dad was very aware of all the, the marketing as well. So we saw the first one. I was blown away. And I think we saw it a few more times 
Um, but I specifically remember when they like I didn't realize that there were more. <laughs> I thought that was it, you know. And I remember looking in the newspaper when we were visiting some family and there was just like the Empire Strikes Back special edition poster in black and white and the newspaper being like, hey, coming next week, <laughs> the Empire Strikes Back. And I was like, what? what? There's another one. That's crazy. And so we ended up seeing Empire and then we ended up seeing Jedi right afterwards as well. And, you know, I probably cycled through the theater the most for A New Hope uh, and then for the other ones as well. And then especially with the VHS it all kind of culminated. Uh, the funny thing, and I always kind of give grief to my mom a little bit. I grew up in a very religious household, um, and she thought Empire and Jedi were too dark, too scary. So I saw those a couple times, not as much as uh, New Hope. I saw New Hope, you know, between theater and then the, the VHS that eventually comes out. I see it hundreds of times. But Empire and Jedi are kind of special occasion movies. Most of the time when, like, my mom is out of town because... She thought Pal- she got Palpatine was a little too scary or like the bad guys win at the end of Empire. You know, I don't super understand uh, the morality there, but it was it was kind of a special treat movie, like a friend was coming over for a sleepover or something like that. Um, and so really A New Hope, as it was then called, uh, really kind of was the movie for me. And I wore that VHS out more than more than anything, more than anything. Yeah, and this tape, this is the, the special edition VHS that came out after the theatrical release. Yes, and that's, and that's I always say, that, that was my first bonus feature, right? That was my first, you know, making of documentary was before that special edition. There was a truncated version of Anatomy of a Dewback um, with interviews with Lucas and about how they brought the Dewback to life. Uh, but then there was also intercut with that uh, a lot of talking head interviews with uh, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and George Lucas and Dennis Murin. And they showed, you know, the blue screen and showed the models. And uh, Mark Hamill, I still remember, talks about going to ILM one day when they're blowing up uh, the Death Star for the trench run. And it's just, uh, I think he, he says that it's uh, ping pong tables uh, with just tchotchkes on top that they're going passes over and blowing up. And it really just stuck in my mind. And, and really that more than the actual movie is kind of like the, the real driving force in my life now. Cause that was really the first time I was like, Oh, people make movies. Uh, and that kind of set me down this whole path of figuring all that out. One of the things that impressed me on all the movies was the way George could take scotch tape and popsicle sticks and, and really make something out of it. When I went, I had visions of what it would look like to see the Death Star blow up. And they had the equivalent of, say, six ping pong tables in the parking lot somewhere in the valley with the, all the tchotchkes uh, glued to the surface, all these model... I mean, they cannibalized thousands of battleship kits and just glued them all on and they were making passes on it with you know somebody just driving a jeep and of course that's the footage of the tie fighters flying past the surface yeah i remember that special edition featurette so so well and for me it was renting from star wars to jedi when i was a kid that ended up being that really formative moment i was just so blown away to see how my favorite thing came to be did you ever have a chance to see that one when you were younger when I was younger, no, because it wasn't super available, right? There was uh, there was a CD-ROM, was it Behind the Magic? And that had the first, like, deleted scenes. And I remember going through all of that, and there were some elements of behind the scenes on there. Um, but I never really watched uh, from Star Wars to Jedi or Classic Creatures until a little bit later, until uh, things got digitized a little bit more. There were a few websites running around in the early 2000s. One was called blueharvest.net or something um, that had things like commercials and those documentaries and the holiday special. That was the first one I saw the holiday special was just like as a quick time movie, you know, on these websites. Um, and so really, and we'll keep talking about it, but like as the digital age grew and as Star Wars grew with it, uh, that's when I was really starting to get exposed more and more. Again, uh, not that my mom was uh, super, super strict, which she was, but I was able to use the internet to really kind of find these niches and, and find find these elements that I really w- were gravitating towards, especially with movies and pop culture. So with that stage set, when did you first hear about a prequel trilogy actually coming along? Yeah, I mean, it was really the the trailer, the teaser trailer, uh, the the Gungans in the the mist, 
Uh, and and that just like again, I was still obsessed with Star Wars. I had all the toys from the Power of the Force two, and and was making stop motion movies. And really, it was all I could talk about. And you know, ninety seven happens, and kids were very excited, and people had the T shirts, and my birthday party was Star Wars. You know, all these things. And then, you know, 98, it kind of goes away for a second, right? There's really, you know, people aren't talking about it as much. And then that trailer hits and it is, uh, it is on. And, uh, and really from there, it became figuring out as much as I could about it. It was kids talking about it or, or kids that were older than me talking about it. And then as soon as all the marketing hits with the toys and the Pepsi and the KFC, uh, then it really just kind of goes crazy, right? And, um... And it really just set off a whole new love of Star Wars for me because by that point I was six or seven. I obviously had a little bit more onus, a little bit more <laughs> freedom, uh, and uh, and yeah, was was really really hyped, especially for Phantom Menace. So where did you end up seeing Episode One? Was this still in your hometown? Yeah, so that finally the uh, Cinemark. Uh, it's called Cinemark Legacy. It still exists uh, in Plano, Texas. It opened up probably between Special Editions and Phantom Menace. So it's, it was a brand new theater, uh, and it was also a quarter mile from my house. I could walk there. Uh, and, and during summers, I would walk there later on when I was probably 10 or 12, but we would walk to the movies. And it was incredible having it right there. And so uh, Phantom Menace comes out, Cinemark Legacy in Plano, Texas. And I had become a voracious reader at that point. Probably, you know, I, I prided myself uh, for like reading above my grade level. And I'm sure I wasn't like comprehending everything, but I was like really trying as best I could to like read up and read bigger. And so the Terry Brooks novelization of Phantom Menace came out. And that was, I was trying to read it before the movie came out, but I probably only got five or six chapters in, um, in addition to the toys. But I remember putting the book down, going and seeing the movie, <laughs> coming back out, reading more of the book, and probably seeing that movie four or five more times, as many as my parents would really allow. Um, because, yeah, I was, I was blown away, and it was, I was the perfect age, right? I was the age of Anakin. I loved Jar Jar, right? It was just, it was the movie for me. Oh, yeah. So I, I have a nephew that's just a bit younger than you. And I remember him asking me to take him to see it multiple times. And I was up for it, too. But I, I, I just wasn't old enough to drive. And there wasn't a theater playing it that was nearly as close. That's, that's enviable. So in terms of the build up to episode two, was there any standout moment from that period of waiting? And how did your experience change between movies? Yeah, I mean, episode two was kind of me coming into my own right i'm hitting what 10 years old and really that's when you were able to kind of figure out what's exciting to you what what means something to you and so it was specifically the episode two right i was all in on phantom menace i dressed as jar jar binks for halloween october 99 right i was all in i had all the toys and really like that's all i could talk about and so then the vhs comes out and i believe the dvd comes out too during that time i might be wrong with the timing there but then every little tease that they would have of what episode two would look like, I was just fascinated. And that's when I first started trying to learn how to use the internet. It was like, what could I really learn about episode two? And that's also when I first, uh, I remember we were at the grocery store checking out. And right there was a picture of Ewan McGregor. First look is Obi-Wan Kenobi with the beard and the mullet. Uh, and it was Star Wars Insider uh, with him on the cover. And then it was a flip cover for Raiders of the Lost Ark. I believe 20th anniversary. And so I made my parents buy that. I brought that home. I just like freaked out and poured through that. Um, they were very good, just like they did with Phantom Menace. They had those special sneak peek figures, right? I think it was like <laughs> Django Fett. Uh, yeah, uh, Zam Wessel. And then like maybe a random droid or something. Like it was just like, it was people of importance and then someone of not importance. And so uh, I saw those. I was like, what's going on? And then Insider really became kind of my, like, go uh, uh, in terms of, like, learning more about the movies and it, talking about StarWars.com. So I was like, oh, let's go to StarWars.com. Let's figure it out. And I remember them announcing the name of the movie and that trailer and just being so excited. Uh, and again, getting the book beforehand, because uh, I really, this is a recurring trend for me. Um, throughout all the releases, I really cannot handle not knowing what's about to happen in a Star Wars. I'll probably pass out. Um, and so similar thing, I probably got through maybe a little bit more of the R.A. Salvatore book. 
but was just so excited for the movie and told all my friends to go see it. Uh, and again, was just was super excited for Attack of the Clones and had uh, still I love the pop that the Yoda fight gets in that theater. Right. People freaked out, which was so great. Uh, and yeah, again, Attack of the Clones with the chip bags and all these things. It was just like a huge it was just like part of my life. Uh, and the toys and everything. And so, uh, again, was really lucky to be like comprehending what was happening and kind of being able to follow as best a 10-year-old can. But again, being just like super amped and super uh, on point. And I do remember this uh, plays a little bit into to the purpose of your podcast in terms of chronicling this. But before Attack of the Clones, there were, I believe, probably 10 charity screenings across America for the movie. Uh, and one of them was at Cinemarket Legacy, uh, five minutes away from my house. Uh, it was one of the theaters that George Lucas thought was the most equipped to see the movie because that's, of course, when the digital projection was happening. And that was also what my dad was working on. My dad worked for Texas Instruments, still works for Texas Instruments. But at the time, he was working on a project called DLP which were the first digital projectors. And so like before a lot of movies, there would be the Texas Instruments DLP logo that would play, including Star Wars, and he would clap. And we'd be like, Dad, stop clapping, you know. Uh, but that was that theater was chosen. Uh, and, you know, it was probably, I bet it was a $200, $300 ticket, right, for the screening five days before. And so that argument was very quickly shut down of me, like, trying to go see it, you know. But we, like, drove by and tried to, like, see what was happening. And that was also during the time of people lining up for movies still, right? There were no reserved seats. You had to line up. And so we'd always drive by. And since it was probably one of the bigger theaters in the Dallas area, it was really fun to like drive by and see the people in tents and, you know, getting ready and uh, just a really exciting time. So then Attack of the Clones happens and, and uh, again, blown away, have all the toys, see it a bunch of times. And, uh, and then again, the DVDs for both Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones are probably two of the best, like, DVDs ever made in terms of special features and really kind of were like the master class, the gold standard of what I expected from a DVD, but also like how I learned about movies and how I learned about Rob Coleman, you know, and John Knoll, like names that 10 year olds did not know that I was just like, oh, of course, Ben Burt. Yeah. And and really kind of, again, really <laughs> kind of screwed me up in the long run, but uh, very grateful for it. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree on those DVDs being absolutely top tier. I mean, it's it's too bad we don't get nearly as much as we used to on the making of side of things. And when you go back and revisit them, you really realize just how special those special features were. Okay, so you were 10 for Attack of the Clones. So middle school age, then for Revenge of the Sith. What are your fondest memories from that era of Star Wars when really everyone essentially knew the ending? And then it really did seem to be an ending in a larger sense. Yeah, that really is, in my mind, still like the peak, the peak Star Wars, right? Everyone is so positive. Everyone's so excited. And I, again, was, you know, 12 or 13, and I could really, like, know how to use a message board at this point, right? I was I was trolling these StarWars.com message boards and, and Force.net and RebelScum.com and and really, like, trying to figure out as much as I could about these movies. And that was also during the time, again, probably golden age of Star Wars content, where Pablo Hidalgo flew out to Australia with the webcam and had that as a hyperspace member. And you would just sit there and refresh, and you would just, like, try to find images. And it's like, oh, there's, you know, a set being built. <laughs> and I guess that's cool, you know, and really, uh, really trying to figure out what was happening. And I remember uh, specifically with Revenge of the Sith, there was a guy on the Force.net message boards who was taking all of the spoilers that we had been learning and that we had been picking up and that Rick McCallum was talking about an insider, and he compiled them into his own novelization. I wonder if it still exists, but it was really good as far as a 13-year-old me remembers. But he was putting like chapters in place and like writing it as if it was the novelization for the movie. And he would update it like every few days. And everyone was so jazzed. And everyone was so pumped about it. And he got, I think, a lot of things right and some things wrong, obviously. And some people were like, this is really good. Is this actually Timothy Zahn? Like people were, were freaking out about this. And then the Stover adaptation comes out and I like, I finished that so fast and I was like, all right, I'm ready. Like, this is about to be crazy. And then one of the things, again, me being so young, and it's funny seeing some people talk about, especially on Twitter, like, did people really not know? But I really was like, is Darth Sidious Emperor Palpatine? Like, I was, 
I was like not super convinced, you know, or I was super convinced, but I didn't think that it was like spelled out anywhere or obvious to other people. And I'd be like, look at, look at this image of, of Ian McDermott's nose. Like that has to be, you know, Emperor Palpatine. And so finally that was re- revealed and I was like, all right, we're in. And so Revenge of the Sith was really kind of like the crux of all of that. And seeing that again, Cinemark Legacy, the second day it came out, because that was, you mentioned I was in middle school and I remember again, there were the huge lines of people and it was so close to my house and it was about to be, you know, it was probably like 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, mom, like, you gotta let me go see Star Wars. Like, this is the last midnight premiere of a Star Wars movie ever. And I was so upset. Like, I was, that's probably the most upset I've ever been uh, to more to my parents. And I was like, I can't believe I'm missing this once in a lifetime midnight premiere of this movie. Uh, and then, like, a couple of my friends saw it and, like, had taught, were talking about it the next day in our carpool to school. And I was so mad. I was so mad. And I had the comic book. And they were like, oh, this isn't in the movie. This is, you know, like, the Qui Gon scenes in the comic book. They're like, oh, we don't remember that. And I was like, oh my God, like, I'm pissed, you know? Like, I've done all this work and all these noobs have seen the movie before me, right? Like, I was just so upset. But I finally saw it and it did blow me away. And again, DVD was great. And then just really kind of spent, you know, probably Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, those, you know, six years just beating up on my little brothers and then beating up on me with those plastic lightsabers. And it really just kind of took a hold of us. And so uh, the prequel era is very, very special to me because I was very aware of what was happening. But also, I think a lot of different elements were really coming into play in terms of my own self-awareness and also like kind of what I was gravitating towards. And um, I really, really cherish those times. Yeah, you were the absolute perfect age. And I think I was slightly too old and playing it too cool to enjoy it as much as I should have been. Uh, But it's been fun revisiting that time now that I'm even older, but wiser and uh, appreciating just how special of a time it really was. So it's, it's great to hear perspective from someone that was just in the zone when the prequels were coming out and how much that, you know, pure enjoyment has endured. So we all age almost a decade and the Disney acquisition takes place. At that point, where were you in terms of your fandom and how did your perspective evolve when it came to the new Star Wars film projects coming out? Yeah, for sure. I um I don't want to like pat myself on the back or anything like that, but like I was even after 2005, so that's, you know, I graduated from high school in 2010 and then I go to college uh and I still was just like obsessed with star wars and it kind of became my thing right and i'm sure a lot of people listening and a lot of people can relate right just like was my thing like i was a star wars guy i loved star wars and even then like things weren't coming out right there weren't new things right and then uh i remember going to celebration four and them announcing clone wars maybe like hey there's new star wars and i was like we don't care like we don't want to watch this and so i read the books i read i mean i've read I think I've read every single Star Wars book at this point. Um, and so I was really kind of like on top of everything and really keeping track of everything. And it, it's, again, a, a special period for me, right? 2005 to when was the acquisition announcement? Like 2013? 2012, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I was in college. And so, you know, that's seven years of, of relatively nothing, right? There's uh, M&M's. <laughs> And there's a NASCAR car and there's the Rose Parade, right? There's like these little beats that like StarWars.com was pushing. And I was like eating it up. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. Star Wars. Great. Like, I love it. And uh, it's a kind of a, an interesting special time. It's another kind of uh, dark period, right? People always talk about the Thrawn trilogy bringing Star Wars back into to the limelight. And this is a very similar time period that then is reinvigorated by the Disney acquisition. Then I remember being in college and you know, being the Star Wars guy in college, and I was driving back from class and get a notification on my phone that's like, you know, George Lucas and Bob Iger agree uh, to to sell Star Wars to Disney, and they will be making seven, eight, and nine. And I was driving home, and I I don't remember getting home. I like blacked out. I like woke up on my bed, just like staring at the ceiling, and I was like this is happening. This is real. And my phone was just blowing up from, you know, people from the past decade that knew me as the Star Wars guy being like, you good? You hear about this? Like, everything going to be okay? Um, And yeah, man, it was really, again, just like this reinvigoration and seeing people excited about Star Wars again was was so, so great, especially because for a long time, it kind of felt like, you know, a solo standard bearer of, of the, a keeper of the flame of Star Wars. And so it was really cool to see people excited again, people talking about it again, all the possibilities. 
And then, you know, they start announcing the cast and who's writing it and all these things. And all those things don't happen, right? Like, what's his name? The Little Miss Sunshine guy, uh, Michael Arndt, doesn't write uh, episode seven, right? Uh, and all these little things. They're like, okay, Lawrence Kasdan's coming back. Like, okay. And they're like, okay, and now we're announcing Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and Adam Driver. You're like, okay. And, and so then I went and watched everything that all of them had been in. Daisy had been in nothing. She'd been in like a PSA for British TV or something in like a couple episodes of a random TV show. But the guy I had seen in Attack the Block, and I was like, okay, I'm comfortable with this guy, like him. Uh, and then Adam Driver was pretty much in Girls. That was pretty much what he was known for. And so I was like, I guess I'm watching every season of Girls, you know? And so I watched all of Girls to figure out who this Adam Driver guy was. And yeah, again, talking about me, like, just needing spoilers, uh, I really was, uh, I was in grad school at that point, really, when all the big leaks were coming out, because a lot of, that episode seven, more than any of them, was leaked, like, so hard, uh, almost to, like, scene by scene, um, but I remember there was, like, a first batch of concept art that was released, a lot of it, which is in the show stack books, but it's, like, of a, the Jedi killer, and it's, like, is that Luke, what's going on, and so I remember pouring through those concept art pieces, and that's really when that Star Wars leaks Reddit uh, really took off, that's when it first started, and that's when I first started dipping my toes into the Star Wars community as well, again, because I really had kind of taken a break, at least online, um, from being part of it. And then um, I was in grad school, uh, and then the, I went to Texas A&M in College Station, which only has one theater, uh, and I was so nervous about getting these tickets, and so, like, the tickets go on sale, I'm standing, I'm the only one, like, at the actual theater, and I was like, okay, give me 10 tickets, and I buy them right then, physically, and I hide them in, like, a safety deposit box almost in my room, because uh, my whole family was coming into town, because I was graduating from grad school the night of Force Awakens premiere, and I was, like, so stressed, because, again, College Station, Texas, small town, no reserve seats, so I had my little brother as a graduation present go to the theater early to reserve 10 seats, right? Like, I didn't want to, like, be a, a rube and, like, show up, you know, like, it was during my graduation ceremony. It was pretty much when you'd have to get there to get the good seats. So Christopher, my little brother, like, had to save all these seats, you know, and then I'm right in the middle and we get there and I am so glad I was spoiled um, that Han Solo was going to die because if I did not know that, like, I would have probably also died in that theater like i would have i would have had a heart attack and so um but that experience was great and i like i love the force awakens i always call it like a miracle movie because of what it did to reinvigorate the saga and bring a lot of new fans in and a lot of old fans back in and really feel like star wars and uh and yeah i you know lined up for the force fridays and, and got my little lego sets and toys and black series and and I was back into Star Wars, man. It was it was back, and people were talking about it. People were excited about it, and I saw that, I don't know how many times, because in College Station, tickets were $4 to see movies, because there's nothing else to do in College Station. And so, uh, same with Avengers came out around that same time when I was in school, and so both of those movies I was able to see like 10 times, because I was like, yeah, like, that's a normal use of money. And then, uh, and then, yeah, it was kind of like an uh, interesting juxtaposition because it was like, it was literally the last day of me being in school. And it was kind of like a graduation into like me being an adult it was like, here is Star Wars is back for you. Like, how are you going to like be an adult fan of this almost? Uh, and so it's a very kind of interesting thing. Actually, I have so I was getting my master's degree, and so I brought my lightsaber to the ceremony, like my Force Effects lightsaber, and made my parents take photos of me. Uh, and it was a great, I had planned for a year. It was almost the reason I got a master's degree, because it was just like, I am the master now, was the Instagram caption with the lightsaber and the, and the gown uh, on the day Star Wars premiered. Like, who could have asked for a better, uh, better Instagram post? So, uh, for, so yeah, so Force Awakens kind of was, was an incredible, incredible time in my life, because it was just so charge there was like so much going on um but i really really love that movie in that time wow yeah that's that's definitely the stars aligning <laughs> just right yeah and uh speaking of approaching star wars like an adult what was your experience with the build-up to and the aftermath of the last jedi yeah i uh, uh again was very hyped on everything star wars at that point and i Last Jedi was the first one that I, it's now a rule for me when I see a Star Wars movie, which is I buy the seven o'clock ticket and I see the movie and then I go sit in my car for 30 minutes and then I go to the 10 o'clock showing. And, and the same night, because the first time I see a new Star Wars movie 
I, I remember seeing Rogue One and just being like, what is going on? Like, the, like that one especially starts off so fast. It's, it, it moves at such a fast pace that first 30 minutes. But there's all those new planet names. And I'm like, I have to remember all of these. I have to know all of these. Like, like these are new Star Wars words that I don't know. You know, that kind of like feeling. And so it really is like overwhelming and not fun. Again, which is why I spoil myself. Because otherwise I would, I would literally explode, I feel like. And so with The Last Jedi, um, by then I was living in Dallas. I'd moved back, I got a real job, and I uh, had the Alamo Draft House in Dallas, uh, which is the best. I currently work for them, so that <laughs> that is uh, a little bit of an a understatement, I guess. I really do like the Alamo Draft House, especially as a movie-going experience, because uh, you're not allowed, uh, if you're not familiar, you're not allowed to talk or text, arrive late in the movie, or they'll kick you out, which is the perfect scenario for me, because if someone is talking during Star Wars, I will, I would literally, like get in a fight with someone, which I would, like the first time I'm seeing a new Star Wars, if someone did that, I would, I would freak out. So saw The Last Jedi, did the seven o'clock and the 10 o'clock thing, walked out of the seven o'clock and I was like, wow, that was crazy. That was really great. Uh, and then I'm sitting in my car and Reddit and Twitter are like freaking out. And I was like, I, I, I thought it was pretty good, guys. I really, I went and saw it at 10 and I liked it again. And I was like, this is really good. And then I go back and I'm reading all these things. And really the first things that people really didn't like about Last Jedi, which is never, never really talked about now, but is the Leia scene of her floating. That was like the big, people were like the Mary Poppins scene. Everyone was was dragging on it. And I was like, listen guys, it's Star Wars. Also like, like if we're debating on the action, cause some people were like, I can't believe Leia would be able to do that. And I was like, okay, like, I don't know. Like Leia is the daughter of Anakin Skywalker. Like she even has latent powers is powerful. Like it's fine. And then I, I, cause I understood people be like, Oh, it looked goofy. I'm like, it looked a little goofy, but it wasn't enough to like make me hate a movie, you know? Um, and then of course, as time went on and as more talking points for that movie developed, people really hated it. I saw it a bunch of times. It is my third favorite Star Wars movie. I think it's great because it really reminds me of Star Wars Empire and Phantom Menace where they are each unique, but they still feel like Star Wars, right? And it was the first time in a long time, right? Since 99, that there was a Star Wars movie that was trying to grow uh, beyond Star Wars or teach a new lesson beyond Star Wars. And uh, again, I really, I really liked it a lot. And that's what really kind of reinvigorated uh, me, like loving Star Wars in a creative way. Because I saw all of these things and I'd been consuming all these things that were not as creative, right? Like there were a lot of the leak culture, especially is not a super creative thing in general. But then there are podcasts and there are things. And so people, you know, creating new fandom and especially Force Awakens really started a trend of, you know, people writing their own fan fiction and people doing incredible art and all these things. And again, creative fandom is something that really became something very important to me as opposed to just being a passive observer. And then Last Jedi, especially seeing just people like complaining, complaining, and then me being just so jazzed about it, like me being just like, no, that was like good Star Wars. I was really trying to figure out a way to like be constructive and be be a creative outlet rather than just someone like posting about, you know, like I can't believe Luke is dead, you know, or whatever. It's like, okay. Again, if I hadn't known Luke died, I would have literally just like, you know, fallen over during that scene. And so uh, that's when uh, I, I pretty much right after Last Jedi came out, I was back home for Christmas break and I was driving around. And I was like, I wonder if there are any Star Wars podcasts, <laughs> which is a stupid question because there there are. And at that time there were, but not as many as there are. I feel like there's a, a billion and you can you can agree too. Like there's just a billion out there. Uh, and so I started like just Googling and figuring stuff out. And there was one uh, AV Club article uh, that was listing good podcasts. And they were like, hey, there's this new st- – or they're not new. There was like a new podcast episode of a Star Wars podcast. Uh, and it's the most um, – droll episode of of Star Wars Minutia I've ever heard. I can't believe people would listen to this. And it was an episode of Blast Points that uh, was detailing the different sound mixes of A New Hope. And I was like, and I listened to it, and I love those guys, and they were like just being goofy and also very sincere and like very loving of Star Wars. And I was like, this is exactly how I think about Star Wars, how I consume Star Wars, how I like Star Wars. 
And I spent the rest of that, you know, break just like listening to like 70 Blast Points episodes. Just like, just, it was like QVC specials. Like, yes, of course. Oh my gosh. Yes. Like, we're like, here's Kenner toy commercials. Like, yes. Incredible episode, right? And I just like was freaking out. And I texted, I was running a pop culture website at the time. And I texted my co-site runner who also then became the producer of the show. And I was like, I really want to do a Star Wars podcast. Uh, And so it really kind of like, and again, trying to be constructive and trying to like figure out what I could bring to a pretty crowded space. Uh, That's where we kind of figured out like, oh, we should just do like Mark Maron, uh, but but with people that worked on Star Wars. And so then I worked on on the first few episodes for about six months and then Solo comes out right, you know, in in May or June of the next year. And so we we release on the day Solo premieres and, uh, and go from there. And so really again, Last Jedi, if we talk about transformative fandom was really kind of like that turning point for me to be like, okay, like let's take this a little seriously. Let's see, let's see what I can bring to the table as opposed to just kind of consuming other people's product. And so even just, even just that, uh, Last Jedi is a very formative, uh, point for me. Yeah. So uh, definitely a spark then. It's great to hear a bit about the genesis of Talking Bay 94. You know, I, I truly, truly appreciate the perspectives and the voices that you bring out into the spotlight that a lot of fans might not have considered or even been aware of. It just weaves such a detailed tapestry of Star Wars and what makes Star Wars. Thank you. Is there any more detail you'd like to share in terms of coming to the concept or maybe some of your favorite guests? Well, uh, I mean, in terms of impetus, in terms of it actually beginning, again, very lucky. We talked a little bit about how this random theater in Plano, Texas was like one of George Lucas's like picks for like the first digital projectors. And literally, again, two miles away from me at the Plano Center, uh, one exit down the the highway uh, was a convention, the Dallas Comic-Con that was run by a guy who I, I'm now familiar with, Ben Stevens and, and Mark Walters. And they also owned official picks and official picks still exist today. They're actually running the autograph hall this year for celebration again. Uh, but for the longest time, we're the official autograph and photograph provider for Star Wars. And so I think they ran um, Celebrations 3, 4, 5, and the Europe ones as well um, before Tops took over. And, and they had the official license for a long time. But they were based in Dallas. And so they did all these things across the globe. But then they would have their home show in Plano, Texas, two miles away from my house. Uh, and so you can look up these guest lists. But on the off years that there weren't celebrations, they would have something called Star Wars Fan Days. And they had two or three of them. uh, And just incredible guests came through. And I was able to meet them very short lines. Like Ben Burt was there and Lauren Peterson and Robert Watts. And of course, Dave Prowse and Carrie Fisher and all these people came through as well. But again, it was a lot of behind the scenes people, a lot of like first time convention appearances, uh, and then a lot of just incredible panels. And so I got to meet a lot of people and got to meet a few agents, got to kind of talk through that with them. And, you know, especially in the early days of Facebook, I friended, I was like, oh, I found Daniel Logan on Facebook. Like, here's his personal Facebook, you know, and just friended them and whatever. And so it really kind of became like a, a first stepping stone for me because like, that's where they premiered the Clone Wars. The first time it was premiered was like in California. And the second time it was shown, the movie was in Dallas and they brought the entire cast. I still have my theatrical poster. I paid $40 for the entire cast to sign it. And then I met Dave Filoni in the hallway and he signed it. Like it was crazy stuff because like no one cared about Star Wars at that time. Like, you know, no one cared. Uh, and so with all those connections, I still had a, had a couple and I was like, I bet I could probably get a few Star Wars actors. And again, going back to my love of behind the scenes and those DVDs and the books and, and me just kind of trolling the internet, like I really had a pretty firm grasp at that point on behind the scenes. Um, nowhere close to being an expert at any stage of this even now, but really did kind of appreciate a lot of behind the scenes people. And so I was really confident in my ability to to get a few names at least um, and go from there. And then what was very nice is a lot of them kind of recommended me to their friends and to their people that they would go to conventions with. One who did so much help for me, uh, who just recently passed away, Gerald Holm, who played, who played, uh, Tessic, who played Squidhead, uh, was probably the second person I ever interviewed. And, uh, he, you know, everyone that knows him and, and, and kind of read all, he had a, a thread on rebelscum.com that's incredible. And I, I link it in the show notes because it really is like a, a firsthand account because he has like a, he had a photographic memory of everything that happened. And so he would call out people that were like lying about who they played. So it was like crazy stuff. 
but I interviewed him first in person. He came to Dallas for a convention. I interviewed him in person for probably 10, 15 minutes. And there's just like a little video interview before we did the podcast, me just kind of practicing. And then I was like, I'd love to interview you, you know, in a longer thing. And we talked for probably two and a half hours, three hours. And I was like, oh, geez. Uh, and I edited it to about 45 minutes. Uh, you know, cut a lot of ums, truncated some stories, moved some stuff around. And he emailed me back. He was like, Brandon, like, this is the best interview that I have ever done. I sound so great. And I couldn't tell him that it's because I edited it out two and a half hours of him talking. But he was very appreciative of, of me being so considerate in that way. And so then he started telling, especially other like Jabba's Palace performers and stuff and people that he had met. Uh, and he would always send me emails like, hey, have you talked to this person? And so that really kind of set a chain of, uh, of me talking to people and then you know, just have gone from there. And I think we're at about 130 episodes now, hopefully about 150 by well, the time celebration rolls around. And, uh, and yeah, it's been, it's been just uh, an enormous, enormous blessing and a, and a huge blast. Ah, oh, that's great. Yeah. I've only heard good things about Gerald. Yeah. That's really nice to hear. So we didn't quite get to the rest of the movies, but I think it's interesting right now because the Star Wars theatrical experience just doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. And then the rise of Skywalker having to come out at almost like the end of the world as well. Yeah. There's something about that connection to it that I'll never be able to separate. And I always just assumed, oh, well, it'll be a couple years, but we'll be back in a theater again with more Star Wars. But eh, not quite. Uh, but what would you say were your highlights from that side of things? Yeah, again, seeing a Star Wars movie in the theater... It's just like the coolest thing in the world, right? And so there's part of me that's always like, no matter what, just like super jazzed, right? Just super jazzed to like be sitting there, hearing the the opening crawl. Uh, I remember with Force Awakens because the timber is slightly different that they, they changed the pitch of Force Awakens. And I was like, what's going on? Like, it sounds different. Like the opening fanfare, like what's happening? Um, and so that's like a whole, that's a whole experience being able to sit down and watch Star Wars on a big screen. Uh, right, the Skywalker did the same thing, the 7 o'clock, the 10 o'clock. I did definitely go sit in my car, and I kind of put my head between my hands. I was like, do I like this? Do I not like this? Like, what's happening? Um, and, you know, I'm not the biggest Rise of Skywalker fan, but I also have not made, like, a bunch of YouTube channels about, like, trashing it, right? You know, like, I kind of was just like, you know what? Like, not every Star Wars is going to be for me. Not everyone's going to hit. I understand exactly what they did. I understand exactly why they did it. And I think, again... Just similar to the prequels and similar to people's reactions to the prequels and then what the Clone Wars did to kind of make it a fully formed story. I think we're about to get that and it's been teased already in Mandalorian Season 2. But I think that's what we're about to get. And I think we're going to look back on Rise of Skywalker, especially when we get more of that trio post-Episode 9. I think we'll be able to look at Rise of Skywalker a little bit differently. Still as a, a weaker install, uh, installment of Star Wars, but not like catastrophic because that was like i i mean it, okay, it was you like you said it was before the pandemic and people were just like it was like as if people had died and i was like guys like it, it's fine like we'll be fine it was fun it was fine i you know i uh haven't watched it a ton of times I, i've revisited it often when I, I just got a new 4k tv it was the first movie i watched uh, on that tv because it is a very pretty movie and so yeah you know right skywalker happened uh everything shut down i do remember uh disney when everyone was still like oh are we like gonna be done in a couple months they released it a few weeks early i don't on, on digital and i had already pre-ordered the the 4k but i was like uh well i guess i'm buying them it on itunes so i can watch this you know dang feature length documentary you know <laughs> like like two weeks early or whatever so so yeah, you know, uh, again, a theatrical Star Wars is great. I really cannot believe Disney has not just been like, hey, we're screening the first three episodes of Mandalorian on the big screen. Like that that would be a home run and like people would 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 go to that and it'd be so much fun to go see that. Um, but yeah, I, I know there were a couple of special event type screenings of the Mandalorian that happened in L.A. and New York. And man, how great would it be if they replicated that to, you know, some extent around the country when something new is coming out? I get that the emphasis is on the draw of the streaming service, but I, I think they would do really well. But as a property, small screen Star Wars, at least the way it's being made now, still feels like it would fit just fine on a big screen. But yeah, I really do miss that theatrical experience so much. Um, but I, I know it'll be back. It, it always comes back. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, it was, again, they just did Rogue One for Disney Plus Day, right? They screened that. And then during the pandemic, they, they did do the, 
Star Wars and Empire, I believe, at drive throughs And then they did that Empire 40th, which I, again, that was during the pandemic. I was like, I'm not going to you know, die to go see this movie on the big screen. But I did, for my birthday, I was able to see Empire at a drive through which was, like, so fun. Like, that was like, that's the best. And so, like, that, I would love distribution to start picking up Star Wars again. And really, it's all Disney saying yes and no to stuff at this point. I was kind of anticipating, especially with Kenobi coming out, them re-releasing Revenge of the Sith uh onto big screens to like hype people up like that would be crazy if they you know had that going on in two weeks you could go to wherever and see revenge of the sith on the big screen but you know hopefully it becomes a rep kind of screening moving forward and and uh and we'll just go from there but but it would be great to start seeing things on the big screen again in terms of the original versions of the original films, had you ever had a chance to see any of those in a special screening? Uh, not in a special screening. I own the Despecialized Editions. I have all of that. Uh, and so I've seen them on my TV, which is nice and, 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 and good. I do. I would really love to see especially the original, especially Star Wars on the big screen. Yeah, well, the vault door has been open a little bit over the past couple of years with the, you know, the Academy screening a 70 millimeter print of the original a couple of times now. So I'm hopeful you'll get that chance before too long. So to wrap things up, and you've hit on this from several fronts, but how has Star Wars maintained an influence on your life? And what part have your movie going experiences played in that? Yeah, I um again, the movie going experience has always been just like so important and sacred to me you know it's kind of like the place i go uh when i'm like stressed or when i just kind of want to like experience something and the pandemic really taught me like i cannot watch a movie on my couch really for the first time i really can't do it uh without really fully appreciating i think the best example recently i saw drive my car in the theater you know and it's a three and a half hour movie with subtitles and you know beautiful and just like an incredible movie going experience and the entire time when i was driving back home i was like if i had just waited for hbo max i don't think i would have loved this movie in the same way and so movies in general to me have always kind of been like that for the theater and Star Wars, especially, especially with the behind the scenes content that we've been talking about, has really kind of like set me on on this path. And right now, like I work for Alma Draft House, which is one of those sacred places for me. And uh, and then being able to kind of like be a small part in that experience has been has been very, very rewarding as as this journey kind of closes. And so, you know, it's Star Wars it's easy to make fun of, right? It's easy to be like, oh, like a little Star Wars nerd or like, but like it's, it was the gateway to everything, right? It was the gateway for me watching a Kurosawa movie or watching Hitchcock or, or you know, kind of watching anything that Lucas said he was inspired by and then that Spielberg said he was inspired by and then Coppola said that he was inspired by. And so like, you know, I got a film education just from liking a, a blockbuster movie, right? And being able to explore that creatively and, and transformatively has been probably like the greatest achievement of my professional career, right? Being able to write for Star Wars Insider after all this time or being able to look back on all these episodes where it is just like actual like oral history of, of a thing that I really love. And some of these people, this is their only interview ever, right? Uh, and and that's a really like huge honor. And uh, I'm excited to see like where that goes and, and what else I can do. And, and yeah, it's, it's always been star Wars. I mean, since 97 and, uh, and that's a pretty incredible relationship to have. And I'm very, very lucky that, that it still means something to me and that it means something to a lot of people. Thanks again, Brandon, for coming on and sharing your stories and your Star Wars journey. I, I can't wait to see how your Talking Bay 94 roster of behind-the-scenes voices keeps expanding into the future. Thanks for all the work you do. I uh, also cannot wait. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. This was a really uh, thrill.
Thanks again to Brandon for turning the mic toward himself for this round and sharing so many great memories. They definitely revived similar fond ones of my own. And speaking of memories, as a little special edition coda, I thought it'd be fun to close things out with a quick Star Wars Insider Magazine then and now. I've got a pair of issues here, the first being number 32 from winter 1997, and the other being number 211 from just this past June. Number 32 has a great piece on ILM's fast-flourishing digital technology by Mark Kodavaz, who just co-authored a book on the subject. He notes that the special edition's two-plus-year production period lasted as long as the original film's production timetable in the 70s, which is just nuts. And this is followed by a quote from Rick McCallum that I can instantly hear in his voice. Quote, Most special editions or director's cuts are about putting in what's been cut out, but this was a more innocent, more romantic notion, where George essentially said, These are some changes I want to make to get the film back to what I originally envisioned. Also in this issue is a 20-year toast to Star Wars compilation of anecdotes from cast, crew, and other celebrities reminiscing about first seeing the movie in theaters. And there are some wacky 1997-ish gems in here. Batman and Robin actor Chris O'Donnell recalls that he saw it at the Eden's Theater in the suburbs of Chicago, which had since been torn down. He says, quote, I was a kid who'd seen the Bad News Bears and the Apple Dumpling Gang, and then here come the White Stormtroopers. We were just going, holy <laughs> Angelo Moore of the band Fishbone would say, quote, I was 13, I saw it at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. It was crazy. I had never thought any of that <laughs> would be going on in outer space. I'd go in my backyard and look up there and wait. <laughs> you weren't alone, Angelo. And Benicio Del Toro remembers being handed the original souvenir program in a restaurant in New York by some random guy who had just seen it. And after pouring through, he, quote, thought that it was, like, very weird. He wasn't wrong, but he ended up loving it when he saw it and still had that program as of 1997. I love that. So flash forward 25 years to Insider issue number 211, and none other than our own Brandon Winerdy has an article looking back at the special editions through stories from the behind-the-scenes folks that made it happen. Perfectly fitting. My favorite bit comes from ILM's Howie Weed, who worked on and performed as the revamped full-frontal Wampa from the beginning of Empire. He discusses George Lucas directing him during the shoot, and in an attempt to tone down his initial over-the-top Harryhausen-like performance, Lucas apparently told Weed to act like a big dumb bear. After each take, he'd tell him to do it slower and dumber. Even slower. Even dumber. That may be the ultimate counterpart to faster, more intense. Anyway, be sure to check out Brandon's fantastic work in The Insider, and of course on Talking Bay 94. Links for the latter, as well as where you can find Brandon on social media or in the full show notes on this project's main website, StarWarsAtTheMovies.com. You can keep up on Facebook and join the group, and follow on Twitter and Instagram too. I'm also on Twitter at StevenBDam. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, be more like George, continue to push for the impossible, even if the end result is a little strange, and remember... Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. Coming this summer, it's the digitally re-enhanced re-release of the very first pilot episode of South Park. Yes, the classic rough handmade first episode is getting a makeover for 2002. The simple funny aliens are now super badass and cool. The flying saucer, no longer cheap construction paper, but a 4 megapixel non-drop digital masterpiece of technology. Yes, everything's new. New is better. When we first made South Park, we didn't want to use construction paper. We just had to because it was cheap. And now with new technology, we can finally remaster South Park to make it look sharp, clean, and focused. And expensive. Yes, all the charm of the simple little cartoon will melt before your eyes as it is replaced by newer and more standardized animation. For instance, in the scene at the bus stop, we always meant to have Imperial walkers and giant dewback lizards in the background, but simply couldn't afford it. Get this special enhanced version quick, because another enhanced version will likely be coming up for 2003. This um, was one of those scenes where I had these big rubber dummies out there in the desert and I really wanted them to move so this is the, the new example where we would put in some walking dewbacks which are what those giant lizards are called um, you know, it just gave more life to the whole thing and made these creatures be more than the, the rubber dummies